whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are, and what kind of philosophical work you do? Hello, I'm Kyla Ebels-Duggan. I am professor of philosophy at Northwestern University in the lovely town of Evanston, Illinois. And I teach moral and political philosophy in what I think of as a kind of broadly Kantian tradition. Though, as my work goes on, my conception of the Kantian tradition has become broader and broader. Well, I am tempted to ask you about how your conception of the Kantian tradition has changed. But I'm not going to do that yet, just in case it comes up later. Maybe we'll get to it. I was going to ask you a, a question that might be related to that, which is appropriate to the podcast, which is that I think of you as someone who is interested in Kant and also interested in Iris Murdoch, even though Murdoch often caricatures and criticizes Kant's moral philosophy. I mean, do you have a take on how to fit together Kant and Murdoch or how those two interests interact for you? Well, I'm working on that. I agree with you that Murdoch's characterizations of Kant are not her strongest point. But I have a general view that um, the Kantian tradition and the sort of traditions of ancient ethics, you know, but in ancient Greek ethics, both Aristotle and Plato, are not in tension, but that the Aristotelians and the Platonists and the Kantians should be more like friends, that the two traditions have different strengths are different, are focused on different kinds of questions. And the way that I have come to think of it is that the Kantians are really focused on questions of action and the will, things that we can choose about. And some of the ancient Greek tradition, and then I would put Murdoch in this category, they are better on questions of virtue, but, uh, but also on questions of value. So I've been thinking quite a bit about valuing attitudes lately, which are, I think, things that are not up to choice. And for those sorts of uh, questions, I think that, the, that Murdoch is a better source. At a certain level, I like this idea that everyone can get along and that there's truth in Plato, there's truth in Aristotle, there's truth in Kant, there's truth in Murdoch. I wonder, does Hume get a look in or is Hume, is Hume irrevocably misguided in this, on your, your synthetic picture of how moral philosophy sort of fits together? I'm certainly less influenced by Hume. I mean, I do think it's important to approach everyone and especially the kind of great thinkers of the past with a, with a kind of humility and a strong presumption that they are on to the truth. But I have not myself found as much to love in Hume. Well, that way of putting it makes me think that I should ask you the first official question that you you haven't found much to love in Hume and that you don't you don't have an affinity for Hume. So I think I, I have to ask you about this Iris Murdoch inspired idea. She begins the podcast telling us that philosophy isn't self-expression, but she also wrote to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So 
Does your temperament influence your philosophical work? And if so, how? Yeah, so I love this quote. I love this insight of Murdoch's. When I first encountered this statement of hers, it had the ring of truth. It had the, I, I experienced it as someone describing what I was doing. So it was as if someone could see me. But I also think, and I've heard a lot of your guests say this, that it's pretty hard to get this thing in view in one's own case, or that we all tend to be kind of unreliable narrators about how our own temperaments are affecting our own philosophy. So I kind of think we should be asking and answering this question for our friends rather than for ourselves. But I will try to say some things about it. So I've always been very analytical by temperament in the sense that I've always tried to deal with the world by thinking about it and to deal with my own reactions to the world and my emotions by thinking about them. And I try to deal with people by thinking about them and also by trying to reason with them. And I take comfort in understanding. I always want things to make sense. Even when things are very bad, if they are intelligible, that feels better to me. That helps me a lot. So I think that those are things that sort of drew me into the practice of academic philosophy in the first place. And then I was trying to think a, a little more about the relationship between my temperament and the substance of views that I find attractive. And one thing that I think is true is that I have a very deep sense of fairness, maybe sometimes an obnoxiously deep sense of fairness, not so much in a kind of backward looking or retributive sense, you know, I'm not, not so much in a sense of being concerned that people get what's coming to them. I'm not really concerned about that. But in a forward-looking sense, in that it's important to me that everybody do their fair share. And I always want sort of clearly delineated lines of who's responsible for what and which things are my responsibility and which things are not my responsibility. And then I want everyone to do it, to be motivated by duty, as it were, not to have to oversee each other and push one another around, but for everyone to sort of do their own part on their own in a self-directed way. So I think that that's all very sort of Kantian in, in spirit. I think that that is one aspect of the kind of content of the Kantian outlook that I find attractive. And then one last thing is that I'm very extroverted and I need people around me more or less all the time. I get kind of antsy when my family is out, even for one evening. And I think best in conversations. I think best together. And I think that that may be part of why I've been interested throughout my work in relationships, in friendship and relationships of love and how to conduct those in a, in a good way. Well, there's so much to follow up on there. I'm not sure where to start. I mean, I, I kind of want to say something about Fairness, because what it made me think of, this idea of everyone getting to have their say, was a kind of meta-fairness that was exemplified in what you said about the history of philosophy, that in a way, on your telling of the history of moral philosophy, everyone except maybe Hume. But anyway, these different figures get to have their say. They get to be right about something, that there's a sort of balancing of different perspectives, not just internal to the Kantian ethical outlook but also in how you think of the relationship between that outlook and other kinds of ethical systems of, of moral philosophers. Yeah, I wouldn't, I don't like the balancing metaphor because that still makes it sound to me like these 
like the views are sort of fundamentally in conflict with one another and one has to find a compromise or a midpoint. And I think that what seems more true to me is that, you know, these different thinkers and these different lines of thought have different things most centrally in view. So it's more like a kind of division of labor, that the different yeah, tasks that are taken right, up by different Right, right, right. Everyone does their own part. I mean, this is the picture we get from this of Kant, for instance, is in a way the, the sort of likable, humane, humanitarian Kant. There is also an aspect in Kant, very strong aspect of the kind of fairness that you distance yourself from or you know, would-be fairness, this sort of intense retributive sense that the sort of argument for the need for immortality and and God partly comes from the need that the unjust should be punished. And that's sort of a kind of absolute demand that we have to sort of make room for in our system. And I know you've written about Kant's moral argument for the existence of God, or at least for our faith in God. It sounds like that part of Kant's vision is not appealing to you. That part of Kant's vision is not appealing to me and isn't part of my understanding of what's most central in his view. So I I was raised to read Kant. What, one of the things that Christine Korsgaard taught me to appreciate in Kant was the fact that he is always concerned about what the agent is thinking and doing. As contrasted with Hume, who is concerned about, from another view, looking at the agent and evaluating what she has done or evaluating her character. So I think of that as a very, you know, as, as the kind of organizing principle of Kant's practical philosophy. And I know he says that thing about, I mean, he says that very retributive thing about how if society were disbanding, its last duty would be to execute all the murderers. And I know too, that as you say, many people read some of the moral faith arguments as driven by a retributive thought. I don't read them that way. So the you know, his argument for immortality is quite clearly based on the idea that we need an infinite amount of time to improve ourselves or to, to achieve perfection and virtue for our own selves. The argument for God, so in, in my reading of this, which the article where I've written about this is the kind of article that's not meant to be serious historical scholarship or at least not in the first instance, but meant to be more an article of the character of what's the best thing that we can get from this. So it's somewhat reconstructive in that way. But what I take to be central to that argument, understood in its best way, is the need for an ethical outlook where we can have hope about the outcomes within an outlook where that's not the fundamental moral task. So it's a fundamentally anti-consequentialist approach to moral philosophy. And so the task of the agent is not to make things as good as possible. And I think in the article about you know, ways in which our obligations might constrain us to act in ways that will, that will not make things turn out well and that may make the world worse. And then the, the idea that I'm working with in that article is that the role that God is playing in Kant's system is to account for our necessary ethical concern with the outcomes. We, ha we have a rule of action, but then he also talks about the need to have something to love. We need to be able to love the world. Well, speaking of hope and the need for something to love, I'm going to ask you a question about yourself. This is question two. 
Has philosophy ever helped you out of a practical or emotional difficulty in life? Yeah, so I don't know that it's helped me out of a difficulty, but I think that it has helped me practically. I say to my students often that if we're not doing philosophy in a way that connects to concerns, questions that they have in their ordinary lives, then we're doing ethics wrong. And I think that that has guided my own work as well. So when I was writing my first published article, which is Against Beneficence, I was very early in my marriage and I was trying to work out how to live with someone, how to make a life with someone. And what I say in that paper is that the kind of fundamental guiding principle of working in a loving relationship is not to look out for one another's well-being, but instead to share one another's ends. So to be engaged in activity together where you are respecting, making room for one another's authority and deciding what those activities ought to be. And I think that that idea has helped me in my marriage and in other relationships also. And I've heard through the grapevine that it has been helpful to other people too. I met someone at a conference who said that former students of his reported to him that that article saved their marriage. Wow. You couldn't get better feedback on a philosophy article about love and relationships than that, I think. That is what I thought. You know, when, when I was told that, I felt like, well, if that's all I accomplish in my life, my philosophical work will certainly have been worth it. And then after I wrote that article, I then wrote a series of articles on philosophy of education, ostensibly on philosophy of education. But in a sense, they were really, what I was really thinking about was raising children. And in particular, working out how, on the one hand, raising a child, I I think, centrally involves communicating values to them. And on the other hand, a child is an independent and autonomous person. And in the literature in philosophy of education, those two ideas tend to be set in contrast. There's a kind of thought in the literature that to teach a child some substantive value outlook is in tension with or trespasses on their autonomy. And I, you know, in the midst of trying to work out what it was to be a good parent, I, I was not impressed with that idea. And so I was, I was working against that idea. But I am impressed with the idea that children are their own individuals. So you've written about love for other people and how to navigate that in your life. I'm going to ask you about love for philosophy, but also hate. So what what do you love or hate most of all about philosophy? So what I love about philosophy, and this is a kind of natural transition from what we were just discussing, what I love about philosophy is doing philosophy as a joint activity. I love the experience of doing philosophy in community. So I love the sense when you're in a conversation, one-on-one or in a larger group, it can happen in a classroom, it can happen at a conference. I love the kind of shared sense that you're both in the grip of the importance of some question and that you are making progress on it together. I just, I love the experience of being part of a conversation like that where no one, where the self kind of falls away, where you, where you lose you know, nobody is trying to impress one another or appear smart, but you're just 
trying to figure something out together. I love that experience. One, one place that I tend to have that experience is in one-on-one advising. So in graduate advising and also with the more advanced undergraduates, I've, I've advised a bunch of senior theses where I've had that kind of experience. And what is it that you hate about philosophy? So the thing I hate about philosophy, though I'm not even sure this deserves to be called part of philosophy proper, is grading. I hate grading, but I hate a very specific aspect of it. I don't hate reading students' work. In general, I enjoy reading students' work, and I enjoy commenting on students' work because that feels to me like we're doing philosophy. And indeed, in the best case, it can feel like we're doing it together. And I don't really struggle with, you know, I think some people put a lot of energy and deliberation into thinking about what grade to put on the paper, but I don't struggle with that. I actually have a high level of confidence about what grade belongs on most papers. But what I hate is feeling like I need to correlate the comments to the grade and that the comments need to somehow justify or at least make intelligible to the student why they have that grade. Because that starts to feel to me like we're not doing philosophy anymore because we're not focused on the content of what's said, we're focused, you know, then I have to say something, well, I have to say something that communicates to the student about the kind of strengths and weaknesses of the, of the quality of what's said. That's what I hate. That's interesting. I mean, is it, I want, I'm trying to think about why that seems off-putting, because I also dislike that. I mean, there's something not quite adversarial about it. It's not that you necessarily are imagining someone complaining about the grade, but nevertheless, there's a sort of, it's more like a kind of court of law context in which there are people on each side that the student, as it were, would, as it were, advocate for a higher grade, and you have to then explain why it's a lower grade. And that's something about it maybe that makes it feel like you're not on the same side anymore. Yeah, good. So that last, that thought about not being on the same side, I think, I think is very helpful. I think there's an underlying problem about what we're asking grading to do, and the way, the way in which this practice plays different and I think somewhat incompatible functions. So one, you know, one thing we're doing with grading is we're telling the student how good their work is. And I think that can be helpful to the student and can be a way of being on the student's own side. And this is, you know, I think one place where you see that is in advising. So when you're advising a graduate student or when I'm working on a long-term project with a senior thesis student, you know, I feel like then it's part of the project to say this part of what you're on to is insightful and helpful. And this part seems like you're going on the wrong track. And this part, I have no idea what you're talking about. This part is very confused. So one thing we're doing with grading is trying to communicate with students about how how good their work is. But then the other function that grading plays, you know, especially with our undergraduates, is that it it it, it opens and closes doors for them after their time with us. And so it's the feeling of, on the one hand, trying to tell the student whether they've written a decent philosophy paper, and on the other hand, feeling like I'm communicating, say, with a medical school about whether to let this person into medical school. And I didn't, and I sort of didn't want to have an opinion about that in this context. <laughs> or I want to have different opinion. You know, I want to say, I want to tell the medical school, of course you should let them in. The paper is a B minus. You know, that's it's it's that kind of tension in the in the many roles that, that we're asking this to to serve. And I think you really do put your finger on something when you talk about the ways in which some of that puts us in a kind of joint activity with a student. And some of it, it's as if, you know, the student becomes the object on which an activity between us and, say, the medical school is being carried out. Well, we could talk here about ways in which you've experimented with different kinds of assessment and grading to 
pull those two threads apart, but instead, I'm going to turn us to experimentation in your own philosophical views. Have you changed your mind about anything important in philosophy? And if so, how? Yeah, so this might actually, in a way, take us back to your earlier question about Kant and Murdoch. So over time, I've become more and more comfortable with a kind of realism about value and related to that, more friendly to the idea that we can learn about what's valuable through our experience. One of the questions that first gripped me in philosophical ethics as an undergraduate was the question, how could we ever observe value or how could we ever observe moral wrongness? And what would that even mean? So as an undergrad, I got convinced that at best, that kind of idea is mysterious and lends itself to dogmatism. And at worst, it's kind of meaningless or confused to talk about value being in the world. And so to talk about it being the kind of thing that we could observe or experience. But I was never tempted by relativism or nihilism. It always seemed clear to me that things are valuable and that there are objective standards and requirements about how we should treat each other and what we can claim from each other. So I found normative constructivism of sort of course guards type, uh, the idea that we can reason to these standards just from some kind of formal requirements that anyone would have to accept or starting from just the questions that we face. I found that idea extremely exciting. And I still do find that idea extremely exciting. And the the thought that we could get a kind of um, wholly articulate, compelling argument for our values, you know, in defense of our values and in defense of our practical principles, it seems to me a thing worth wanting in ethics and moral philosophy. But that kind of argument is just extraordinarily hard to work out. And over time, it's come to seem to me less important. Did that happen gradually? Or were there particular moments at which your views sort of shifted? Well, I think it was both. But there are a couple of moments that I can talk about. So one moment that I really remember is I was, I was in my second or third year of teaching, and I was teaching Kant's moral theory, and I was teaching a kind of constructivist reading of the groundwork. And after class, I had this student come up to me. She was an excellent student, very engaged, very sincere, and she was very concerned. And she said to me, what's going to happen if we can't get these arguments to work out? Are we going to have to be nihilists? And I kind of laughed and I, and I said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to be nihilists. We're just going to be realists. Realism is definitely going to be our fallback option. And, you know, hearing, so hearing myself say that to that student in that context was a kind of marker, you know, then once I had said it, I thought that is a fallback option. And then really what I think of as my real conversion experience or the thing that kind of gave me the courage of my convictions on this was reading Tal Brewer's The Retrieval of Ethics. And in particular, there's this passage in that book where he talks about the experience of holding your newborn child in your arms. And he says, when a parent holds their newborn child, they are not in any doubt about the child's value. And of course, it is mysterious, but 
the mystery is not in any way, a, the sense of mystery is not in any way a skeptical kind of thought about value or a, or a doubt. And by the time I read this, I had held my newborn children in my arms and I just thought he was exactly right about this. So I came to think that uh, mystery is not so bad. The mysteriousness of value is not so bad. I do still worry about dogmatism. I can see why you connect this with with Murdoch. I mean, that sort of sense of the arresting reality of another individual and the sort of undeniability of value. It also reminds me, there's a passage I was reading recently in Simone Weil, who influenced Murdoch, where she says, someone who's tempted to steal some money is not going to refrain from doing it because he's read the critique of practical reason. He's going to refrain from doing it because something in the situation cries out for him to return the money that isn't his. And there's something about the sort of the kind of practical acknowledgement of that that seems at, at a more low-key level than holding your newborn to be sort of undeniable. Like, well, at least when you have that experience anyway, it's undeniable. Yeah, I don't know if Vey is, is contrasting the kind of, I don't know if she's thinking of a kind of particularism uh, when she says something in the situation. And I will say I am still quite sympathetic to universalism in various senses. I am still quite sympathetic to the idea that we can say things that are true in general about both about value and about action, about what's worth loving and about how we ought to act. What strikes me as right in what, what you report that Bay says is that it's, it's not reading the critique of practical reason or it's not reading some argument that would convince you not to steal the money. I think what convinces you fundamentally is some kind of ideal of, well, I think some kind of ideal of relationships, of how, of how we should be related to other persons. And I think argument is not quite the right tool to communicate those ideals. Although I do think, to get back to temperament, I do think some of us of a certain temperament can kind of get onto the ideals through the arguments. I think that, I think that is another thing that may have happened to me in, in my experience in learning moral philosophy. But it sounds like a, a fear you don't have is the fear that if the arguments fail, then we'll have to become nihilists. But maybe you have other fears that are worth talking about here. So this will prompt my final Murdoch-inspired question, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, what is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Yeah, I think this is a good question, too. I, I again, agree with Murdoch in her insight in asking this question. And I think it's a good question for the philosopher to ask herself. When I was flailing around for a dissertation topic, Chris asked me, what keeps you up at night? And at the time I said, nothing keeps me up at night. I sleep very well. <laughs> um, and it was true. It was true at the time. But it's not true anymore. I feel the world has become, I have experienced the world as becoming much more frightening in the time since I said that to her. So now I feel like there are many things I could say in response to this question. But one thing I am afraid of is the breakdown of communities and the breakdown of institutions that have organized our communities and that I think have given us the categories, given us, given us ethical concepts that help us think about how to make sense of our lives. And I see that in a lot of places. I see a lot of the institutions that 
I care about and that formed me struggling. But probably the one that is on my mind most, that I worry about most, is that we're collectively giving up on democracy and we're losing our grip on democratic ideals. Just when I think we really need them to uh, address all kinds of various serious collective action problems. So that that's a thing I'm afraid of. That does seem like a thing to be afraid of. I mean, has it affected what you work on in philosophy or, or does this is this sort of separate from the kinds of fears or anxieties that inform your philosophical work? No, I think they are the same anxieties. You know, I just I just said this thing about being fundamentally moved by an ideal of relationship. And I think that's an aspect of the ideal that we're losing. We're, I think we're losing the ideals. We're losing the sense of the attraction of living together on terms of equality and mutual respect, even across quite deep differences. I also, I just, I think our, our concept of one another's value, of the value of persons, this value that is another thing I find very compelling in Kant, his talk of the value of the person as dignity, not price, this very you know, sui generis sort of value. That's a thing I think we most fundamentally understand and keep a grip on in the context of communities and in the context of institutions. And so I worry. I worry about the breakdown of social practices that help us keep that idea in view. Well, maybe we'll end with the Kantian idea of the dignity of individual human beings. And I'll say thank you, Kyla, for appearing on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Kyla Ebels-Duggan is professor of philosophy at Northwestern University. She's the author of Educating for Autonomy, Beyond Words, and other essays in moral and political philosophy. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.